The following program is a podcast1.com production. Snellis, and you're listening to the Freddie Snellis podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, the filmmaker Andrew Haig. Watching the imitation game last fall about the genius Alan Turing, and with an increasingly fading interest being replaced by low-level annoyance, I started thinking, haven't we moved past this old-fashioned and antiquated movie about gay victimization, the ultimate gay martyr movie? I flashed on reading Alan Turing, The Enigma by Andrew Hodges when I was in college, a book that appealed to a lot of gay men, not necessarily because of what Turing had accomplished, but because of Alan Turing's homosexuality. And the divide between the real Alan Turing compared to the role Benedict Cumberbatch played became a distraction while watching The Imitation Game because Turing, even though he was in many ways a victim, never really saw himself as a victim. He was a much more nuanced, contradictory, and complicated man than the desperate, helpless, fumbling, lovable guy that Harvey Weinstein and company want to sell. Turing was a real weirdo, and in many ways he ended up unknowingly or knowingly victimizing himself. And the victim narrative that the movie uses to sell its story is the movie's reason for existing. It's a dark story with a suicide looming in the end, but in typical Harvey Weinstein fashion, it has turned into a triumph of the human spirit. That's in capital letters, by the way. Alan Turing may have killed himself, and there is dispute on whether that's fully true or not. But in the triumphant ending of The Imitation Game, we learn that because of Alan Turing's genius and, of course, sacrifice, he created the computer and artificial intelligence and probably the microwave and video games and on and on. So audiences can walk out feeling good about themselves. And yet The Imitation Game, though like Brokeback Mountain and Gus Van Sant's Milk, is a gay martyr narrative, it does have it center a brilliant and somewhat sophisticated gay man who is the movie's engine and this is rare to non-existent in current cinema anywhere 
And it's a movie made for a mass audience, and it did quite well because it isn't about gay consciousness. It's about problem solving. And Turing had a big problem on his hand, stopping the Nazis and ending World War II. The imitation game made me flash on the movies I saw last year that had gay characters in them. And I'm not counting foreign movies like the French thriller Stranger by the Lake. Well, blink and you can miss it in Ray Fine's character in the Grand Budapest Hotel, I suppose. A big plot point hinges on homosexuality and Greg Araki's white bird in a blizzard. Bill Hader as a suicidal gay waiter actor in The Skeleton Twins seemed like a stereotype dragged in from another era in a film that pretends to be about pain but never makes us feel it. There was the PSA of pride, which is so aggressively, nauseatingly aspirational that it can make you gag even as you're tearing up. A bizarre freak show performance by Owen Sharp in the Irish drama Cavalry seemed so retrograde in its camp flouncing that it made me uncomfortable. Iris Axe, Love is Strange, which was the most heralded of gay-themed movies last year, but for all of the wrong reasons, I thought, was overly careful and cautious and tasteful in its depiction of two older men, fairly sexless and so helpless that I got fed up, even though it was very well made. But it, too, had its public service announcement agenda. Love the old gay married guys. They're so adorable. They're baby pandas. And we'll get to Ryan Murphy's adaptation of the Larry Kramer play The Normal Heart that was on HBO last summer in a bit. Or maybe we won't. Ira Sachs definitely did not want to talk about what he thought of that movie when he was on the podcast. But watching The Imitation Game also made me think about Andrew Haig's breakthrough 2011 movie Weekend. And I wondered wistfully while leaving The Imitation Game, well, what happened? Weren't there supposed to be more movies like Weekend? Weekend, the movie that Haig wrote and directed, was for many of us a defining movie of the decade in its depiction of two young gay men who meet in a gay bar in a city outside of London on a Friday night. Just a casual hookup. One wasn't even the other's first choice. Russell, played by Tom Cullen, is quiet, a bit guarded, self-conscious, a loner. And Glenn, played by Chris New, is more comfortable in his skin, more open and angry, and is more prone to shake up the gay status quo. He's confronting, and he likes to stir up trouble. They are attractive, but not in the stereotypical gay way the gay media espouses. They aren't personalities. They're not not in their lingo camp. They're just two guys, devoid of any stereotypical gay trappings who meet, are sexually attracted to each other, and go to bed. They wake up together in Russell's apartment on Saturday morning, and so begins in its quiet, somewhat muted but lyrical style, the gay movie that generations of men have been waiting for because it is simply about two men who meet, find out things about each other, are not role models for anyone, have sex, drink, do drugs, admit their frustrations about gay life. The movie in its guileless way appears to have no agenda. And watching the movie for the first time, I remember the tension this caused. Is this movie actually, after decades of terrible, earnest PSA queer cinema, going to be a movie about two unstereotypical gay men who are, yes, in less than 48 hours after meeting, making a deep connection? with each other and perhaps are falling in love. Well, yes, the movie says, this is all it's about. Perhaps this is all it should be about. In this short period, we watch Russell and Glenn simply talking to each other, occasionally arguing with each other, and we begin to see something rare in movies, in either straight or gay theme, the opening of consciousness, a study in contrast, two people changing their minds about something, a system of beliefs once held are now being eradicated by falling in love. Again, there's no camp here. There are no gay signifiers. The men are resolutely lower middle class and non-fabulous. There's no melodrama here, no hysterics here. The movie isn't mumblecore, nor is it done in a cheap neo-real style. It's actually incredibly well shot on digital video over two weeks in the fall of October 2010, and it's lo-fi and naturalistic with casually stunning compositions and a rich, warm glow. The characters are well-defined. There's obviously written dialogue, very good dialogue, that has an improvisatory feel to it, and there's a story that ultimately resolves itself in a completely open way. Now, gay men had not been portrayed in movies like this. I'm a gay man, and 51, and a cinephile, and I say this with a fair amount of conviction. The ending happens on a railway platform in a train station 
station in Nottingham on that Sunday afternoon. One of them is going away to the U.S. for two years, and they might not ever see each other again. The ending is, like the rest of the movie, subtle, and it doesn't move towards dramatic hyperbole, and it is extremely wrenching in its refusal to hype or sell anything. There is no agenda here, just a small drama about two people that is often sexy and very funny and moving. And this is why Weekend was such a big deal. There is nothing cute about Weekend or lovable, and it doesn't succumb to the PSA banality of so much of bad queer cinema. The reviews were mostly excellent. People caught what was going on with this movie. And yet one of my favorite critics, Richard Brody at The New Yorker, who is so smart at times and so infuriating at other times, slammed what he saw as, quote unquote, the bland sentimentality and dull attitudinizing that turns the movie into an empty frame of good intentions. The key words here are bland and dull. And that so-called blandness and dullness was actually for a generation of gay men a huge wake-up call in that gay movies did not have to have an explicit and dramatic agenda. It's just cinema. It's just art. On the surface, quiet and unassuming. The good intentions of Weekend are exactly what Brody is frustrated about. These are just people, not stand-ins for some impossibly noble ideal that the corporate gay community longs for and embraces. And yes, some in the corporate gay community had problems with Weekend at initial screenings, wishing it was more gay positive and worried if the guys were using condoms and concerned about the amount of pot they smoked, the amount of beer they drank, and the coke they shared on a Saturday night. Well, it is a Saturday night, fellas. And the gay men in this movie actually disagree about the importance of gay marriage. It seemed the smiling corporate gay community conveniently refused to admit what the movie was really about, as A.O. Scott wrote in a rave in the New York Times. Weekend is about the paradoxes and puzzlements of gay identity in a post-identity politics era. The shock of Weekend is that there is no political cause at the heart of Weekend. I tweeted after seeing Weekend, it's a pretty remarkable movie any way you look at it, but Andrew Haig's Weekend also might be the greatest film about gay men ever made. Well, it sounds like hyperbole, the greatest ever made. But I wasn't worried in overselling the film because where was the competition? There was no competition. Now, why did it take so long for this movie to be made where the entire collective consciousness of the silent majority of gay men is portrayed on screen in 90 minutes, where neither man is politicized or defined by their gayness? Well, it was made as we were rapidly heading into a post-gay culture where gay visibility is becoming so commonplace as to be relatively uninteresting to a degree. We were very far away from the coming out narrative, past the closet narrative, past the AIDS narrative, past the martyr narrative that has dominated the depiction of gays in film. And with the arrival of Weekend and so many gay men reacting to it, I thought, well, here we go, into the future of content about gay people, something that isn't about discrimination or ideology or policy. Well, what showed up? Very little, it seemed, showed up. Cinematic content about gay men just living their lives, trying to find happiness or love. Well, these movies didn't happen in the mainstream. I thought Weekend would make it happen. Gay characters, in fact, seemed to be disappearing from movies in the new global marketplace. And of course they were, because certain countries won't show movies with gay characters in them. Capitalism. But not necessarily in television. And if you want to see where the weekend aesthetic was continued, you had to go to HBO last year for a show that premiered there called Looking. Looking wasn't created by Andrew Haig. It was created by Michael Lannon and based on a short film of his. But the weekend aesthetic continued onto this show about a group of youngish gay men, Patrick, Dom, Augustine, Richie, Kevin, living and working in San Francisco. And that premiered in January of 2014 and was just recently canceled after two seasons. And the influence of weekend seemed everywhere in Looking. Andrew Haig was an executive producer and also 
also wrote and directed some of the best episodes, including my favorite two standalone episodes. Episode five of season one, where Patrick calls in sick so he can spend the day getting to know new boyfriend Richie. And that was, for me, the game-changing episode. And the trip to Modesto, where Dom and Patrick accompany Dom's female roommate Doris to her father's funeral. Yes, Queer as Folk was the obvious precursor, but so was, to a lesser degree, the more genteel tales from the city on PBS. But the times are so much different. This is not an AIDS drama, a coming-out drama, a treatise on bullying. What's radical about looking is that it was actually about nothing, just a TV show following a group of people around, their office intrigues, their relationship struggles, disputes with family members, and everyone just happened to be gay. The gay community, yes, the gay community, and yes, for people who don't like that term, there is one, was divided on the show when it first premiered, and the argument was, it's so boring. Andrew Haig has said that there's so little gay representation on screen, so there's a lot of pressure on it, but it's a pressure we can't possibly live up to. And I was thinking when I was first confronted with this argument, the show was boring. Well, what do you want, guys? Mirror balls and meth orgies? The fact that a show like Looking initially caused dissent within the gay community, and I say initially because it did catch on with them, about its quietly revolutionary way in handling content about gay people was heartening, I thought. And it made Glee and the new normal and Smash and the gay couple in Modern Family seem positively antiquated. The show also at times had a sweeping cinematic look. It was one of the few shows, especially in its lush exteriors, that took full advantage of San Francisco that moved moved the dial closer to the idea that TV is catching up with the look and feel of film. And Looking will probably win a GLAAD award because it's classy and on HBO, but I doubt it will be nominated for any Emmys. In Weekend, Glenn at one point, talking about an art project he's creating which involves taping men with a voice recorder he has just had sex with and asking them how they felt about the experience, mutters that no one will come see his art project once it's finished because it's about gay sex. It's almost as if Weekend was commenting on itself in a way. Looking creator Michael Lannon has said the culture will never be post-gay. And I think he's right in a way because, well, why should it be? So welcome, Andrew. And first thought, I liked Weekend and Looking a lot, and I recommended, and I, and I usually recommend things to my wide array of straight male friends, as they do with me, mostly getting them to take a look at something that I find interesting. And even if they don't agree with me, I have a lot of straight male friends who are intrigued by my likes and dislikes, as I am of some of theirs. And even though I kept talking about Weekend throughout the fall of 2011, and I guess placed it in my imaginary top 10 of that year. And again, it, it received raves from straight male critics, championed by A.O. Scott in the New York Times. I did not have any conversations with straight men about that movie. That year, Drive with Ryan Gosling was the movie it seemed most of my straight male counterparts were talking about, as well as um, Moneyball, Melancholia, Warrior, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, The Tree of Life, and Steve McQueen's Shame, all interesting movies to one degree or another, and there were you know passionate debates about these movies. Was Drive really as good as some of my friends were saying, for example? But the weekend conversations were solely among my gay friends, and I have to say this was true of Looking as well. I would talk about how interesting the show was to straight men, and I really didn't know a single straight male friend of mine who watched it or who wanted to. And I am not talking about Neanderthals. I mean, I'm talking about college-educated guys working within the industry, and they didn't care. And there were a few gay friends who had no interest in the show either. And yet my ultimate feeling was, great. Should they? Should I care that they didn't? I mean, we're beyond this point, right? The conversations I had with straight men about Weekend then, uh, when they asked me to describe it, 
said they would not see that movie even if it was about a man and a woman. They felt that for gay men that weekend would be interesting because it hadn't been done before so well. But they'd seen some version of that movie before as heterosexuals and they weren't interested in it as being recast with gay men. However, they said if Moneyball had Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill as gay protagonists, they would have still seen that movie. I mean, does this make sense to you? I mean, even heterosexual Joe Swanberg, who was on the podcast and had up until then directed an excellent episode of Looking, had said that this was material he would have never thought about directing until he was offered it, something so far from his wheelhouse. And, of course, Russell Tovey's dad, uh, Russell Tovey, who is a pivotal part of Looking, he plays uh, Kevin and maybe his, its sexiest character, had told his son that he got to episode four and said, son, I love you and you're great, but the show's just not for me. Do you think, Andrew, that this lack of interest from the straight world had anything to do with Looking's cancellation? And if so, what is the meaning of that cancellation? I think it does have something to do with the cancellation, definitely. Um, I know when we finished season one and we had um, slightly low numbers, there was a desire to, like, let's hope that in season two more people will watch it, more straight people will come and watch it. Because for the audience to be big enough, it means straight people have to watch it. The gay audience right. probably isn't big enough to, you know, give it a large enough audience. Um, I always felt the straight audience would never watch it. It mm-hmm. was always my thought. When I first made Weekend, I made a film before Weekend about a male escort in London yes. called Quick Beat. And I knew no one would watch that who was straight. Right. And I knew that it would be a challenge for Weekend as well. And I remember trying to get Weekend funded. And I would pretend that straight people would watch it in order to mm-hmm. get it funded. I'm like, of course they will. Why wouldn't they? Um, you know, what the, the emotions that are happening within Weekend are understandable to straight people. Yes. Of course they are. It's <clears throat> not that gay people are so different to straight people that um, straight people are not going to be able to relate to what's going on on screen. Um, but in the end, straight people didn't really watch Weekend, and I knew that would be the case. And I struggle to understand why. I think it's it probably does come down to the sex element still. I think, you know, they will watch something. I think Brokeback Mountain was like some anomaly that exists mm. somewhere else in the world that people went to go and see. It helped that it had like Jake Gyllenhaal in and all those kind of people. But I do think that straight people are, first of all, scared to see gay sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's strange to me that they would be so scared to see it. And I've spoken to straight guys who have watched it and have enjoyed it and have admitted that, do you know what, I actually found it quite sexy and I enjoyed it and it was quite arousing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite truthful. I think there are probably some straight people that are scared to watch something like that in the thought they might even think, you know, they might think, oh, God, I can watch this. What does that mean about myself? But I think it's a wider kind of problem. And I think it's a big problem is that for some reason there's a lot of straight people don't think that they will find a story about two gay men relevant to them and that's Mm -hmm. the strangest thing to me because I don't really understand that Um, and I think it shows how there is still so far to go in society um, in the world because people still don't think that and it's very odd to me Um, and looking was exactly the same thing and I think to be honest there what probably ended looking in the end was first of all that straight people didn't watch it but also that a lot of gay people didn't watch it either and I think that was a fundamental problem. But that's so interesting too because you know it happened uh, with the normal heart as well I think the entertainment press built up the normal heart as the gay event of the year and I know so many gay men who just didn't care especially younger gay men Mm. who just didn't want to watch it. It's time had passed for them in a way but what do you make of that whole notion that gay men 
some gay men were simply interested in looking. Just because it was a gay show didn't mean they had to watch it. Now, that's both, I think, a step forward in a way, but it's also, I mean, as you said, I mean, you need that audience to keep the show going. And it's and it's strange. I mean, I would I would imagine HBO, its champion was probably who Michael Lombardo was probably the guy who really pushed yeah. the show. I mean, were they just rolling the dice, crossing their fingers, hoping? And what were the ultimate numbers for looking? I, mean, I know it climbed. It climbed in the first season, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, it climbed in the first season. And then second season, we started lower than what we were in the first season. And we kind of climbed a little bit, but not to a great deal, not right. to a great level. Now, the issue was we had a bad slot. It was behind girls, behind togetherness. We were the last slot in the night, which I don't think helped. But also I think there's something slightly deceiving about the numbers, which is never really like promoted. But the truth is that average per week two million people watch the show right like that's what it was that's all that's not nothing no it's a lot of there's a lot of people especially in this fractured niche era of viewing content and it kind of frustrated me because it was like yes on the first the premiere episode of season two got like two hundred thousand on the night it was the night of the golden globes or something but it got nearly two million that week Mm -hmm. so people were watching it but i still think that it probably wasn't enough and i do think that what was surprising i think to a lot of people although not surprising to me was that the gay community would be torn on whether they like the show or not i always felt like they would be torn on whether they like the show or not mm-hmm. um, for numerous reasons but firstly it certainly has an aesthetic and a yes. style and a tone that i would never apologize for because it's what i find interesting mm-hmm. in films but it's essentially a niche tone it's not a traditional half hour right. comedy tone it's definitely something more subtle and i think a lot of people just don't like that a lot of straight people wouldn't watch that and a lot of gay people don't like that either so so I was almost like making a show for the niche within a niche, which was always going to be going to be a challenging kind of move. Um, but I think what um, surprised me maybe a little bit was the the like anger that came from elements of the community when they when the show first came out and the like mm-hmm. hatred of it and how they took it so personal yes, and i was like I do you know what calm the fuck down yeah. you know first of all you're complaining about something based on the trailer you haven't even right. watched the show right. yet and you're mm-hmm. saying i'm not going to watch this they're all like white and rich and you're like well first of all they're not right and maybe just watch the show and see what you think about it um <laughs> And then the show started, and look, I will be the first to admit that the way that I make things, they take time to get into. Like, if yeah. you watch the first half an hour of Weekend and then turn it off, you're going to not like it. You're going to be like, what the fuck is happening? Like, the way that I do things maybe does take its time mm-hmm. to build, and we found our feet, right. and they got better. But re-watching those first episodes now, which I've done recently, it's like, I still like them, but it's interesting. Now you know the characters, they make more sense. Right. But it was like, right. we were discovering the characters, we were starting to, like, build the stories. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, but lots of people had, 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 like, decided what the show was before that was, you know, they well, gave it a chance. You know, it's interesting that you say that because there did seem to me, and but this is true of every show, a difference between season one and season two. And part of what is pleasurable about the first seasons of some TV shows is that they're not so enthralled or feel pressured to immediately start out with plot, character change, no matter what the narratives are, there still is a kind of exploratory, behavioral feeling about character, setting up character and tone, and not so enthralled to the demands of a TV show, which demands that characters change, plot drama makes them change. And there was the faint hum of the dreaded how do we keep this going thing that every TV show has to deal with in one way or another. 
And I think this was felt because, as I said, you know, the luxury of the first season is that you can be more observational in a way. The series is not demanding information the way it does when you're introducing everybody, setting things up, depending on observational detail about gesture and behavior. And it doesn't have to be so concerned with the series' demands of story, story, story. But did you feel any pressure or did it seem natural to you with heightening the dramatic stakes of the show to the degree where uh, some of my friends and I who are all – very intensely watching the show, had our conversations about it, and we did have our debates about uh, Russell Tovey going from like a bottom to a top. Was he going to become a drag queen next? Where was he going to go with that? <laughs> was Augustine, who had been such a pain in the ass in the first season, now going to become, because he was such a better guy, was he going to join the priesthood? And then always the most volatile conversations were always about Jonathan Groff's character. And it seemed it seemed like in season one, you were beginning to explore how irritating and privileged that character at least seemed, especially in regards to the self-consciousness he felt about the class divide between him and Richie. And even with his own mother at, the, at his sister's wedding, uh, berating him for being so narcissistic. But Patrick, the character that Jonathan Groff plays, was really the center of the show in a lot of ways. And even though I found him annoying quite often, at least it was bracingly annoying. It felt real. And I had dated men like Patrick. I mean, I knew them intimately, and I felt the show just nailed that guy. But then I felt the show was pulling back a little bit in the second season when every show becomes kind of enthralled to a story beat, to a narrative, which is really why I love the Doris Goes to Modesto thing episode, because it seemed so standalone. But... Is that just me and my jaded friends picking the show apart too closely? Did you feel that as you were overseeing, I guess, the arc of the season, what was demanded from you from HBO or what, or what you felt you had to provide? I mean, look, in honesty, there's definitely um, like pressure that comes on the second season. You know, there was a pressure to make more people watch the show, which it turned out didn't work. But there was definitely pressure to do more with the story, to make things bigger. Um, and I think you're right. I think the first season was more observational. And the second season, we moved into more kind of stories. And I think that the whole kind of Patrick question is very interesting to me because, look, I read everything. I read all those comments that people say it's the worst show in the world and they hate it and <laughs> they hate Patrick and he's awful. But I do feel like, feel like Patrick is actually a very truthful character. Oh, yes. Like, very. incredibly truthful. Yes. He's like, and I think he sums up this, this you know, a certain type of gay person, which Completely. all of us, which a lot of us can understand. Oh, yes. You know, they don't, they look at the society around them and they say, why am I still having so many problems with accepting who I am, with being gay, with moving forward, with having relationships? They are still, like, burdened by something. And um, because society has moved on so greatly, they forget that they still have a whole past that like on their shoulders of being gay of growing up gay of feeling isolated of feeling alone of not feeling part of society and I feel like just because Patrick is white and middle class and you know should be happy it doesn't mean he is happy and I think there is certainly a burden of him growing up gay and not being happy with the sexuality that's fed into his present kind of state of mind I have been thinking about the new bullying aspect of everyone demanding respect in the culture now. Every group demands that you respect them. Now, I'm not sure if I believe in this. I think everyone should um, tolerate each other. But when you start demanding my respect, sometimes I just have to draw the line and think, no, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with your outlook on things. And no, I'm not going to respect you. I will tolerate you, but I don't have to respect you. And I think this attitude of mine is what got me into trouble with GLAAD a couple of years ago <laughs> when I was disinvited to their ceremony that year because of tweets I made about gay content, primarily about Glee, the new normal, and Smash, and about 
Matt Bomer playing Christian Grey, as well as expressing my distaste for certain aspects of Grinder, which my boyfriend and I had used many times to varying degrees of success. And the elite gay community took such offense that a gay man could have certain contrary and quote-unquote disrespectful opinions that Glad, after disinviting me, actually wanted to sit down and talk to me about my issues in being disrespectful. And I thought, as I wrote in an op-ed about Glad's decision not to have me at the ceremony, and by the way, asked me not to publicly divulge that they were disinviting me, I was thinking, I'm going to have to sit down with people from GLAAD who are going to explain to me about my disrespect in social media. And I really thought, where in the hell are we now? Are we in gay elementary school? Are we all children? And it made me realize also, who wants to be fully accepted and by who? Well, I guess there were rules I need to follow if I want to be fully accepted, but I don't want to be fully accepted, and I never have. And I feel like James Joyce, when he said, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, he said, I have to face it, that as an artist, as a writer, I am always going to be offending somebody. So what? You know, it's kind of this tolerance versus respect. I mean, I, I can and I will tolerate you, but I don't need nor I don't want you to respect me. The idea that we have to love everyone in this culture right now is kind of this utopia of bullshit. And as is the idea of one's authentic self being eradicated by an increasingly corporate culture, which is in many ways what I think Lab represents, you have said – It is very important to show gay people as messy and complicated and truthful rather than the representation of an idealized version of gayness. Now, do you think this is happening in the culture, this idealization of gayness? And is it eradicating the guys who don't want to march in the parade? I think it's I think it's definitely doing that to some degree, but I think it, it's a kind of slightly like a wider problem almost. I think there is certainly there's very different ideas of what being gay should mean and does mean, and that can right. come from people that will be on Glad and that kind of version of what is an acceptable gay person. And then there's another version by other people that's like you should be radical, you should be totally accepting of your sexuality, you should be this, you should be that. So it comes from all different directions. And as a gay person, I think you can feel incredibly lost in okay, what does it actually mean? How, how should I be as a gay person? And I'm interested in characters trying to discover who they are, you know, themselves on an individual basis. I don't care what the gay community thinks of me. I don't care what the straight community right. thinks of me. Like, fuck them. Like, you know, I didn't make looking all weekend to say this is what a gay person is. For me, both of those things were very much based around people trying to understand who they were as people, trying to work out what had affected them, become the person they are, and how they can become an authentic version of themselves. That was always what's interesting to me about both about Weekend and about looking about all of those things. But the rest of the uh, community is very quick to say, no, that's not right. You should be either like a perfect version of a gay that doesn't take any drugs and doesn't talk about sex, or you should be something something else whatever that is you shouldn't be i don't know like patrick is you know so stop being boring basically like everybody's very critical and that's kind of frustrating well it reminds me of the mock outrage controversy that russell tovey got into when he said in a profile on the guardian <laughs> i feel like i could have been really effeminate if i hadn't gone to the school i went to where i felt like i had to toughen up if i'd been able to relax prance around sing in the street i might be a different person now i thank my dad for that for not allowing me to go down that path because it's probably given me the unique quality that people think i have no i love that comment i don't think i love that russell is so open about that but of course it's not publicly relatable. It's not all-inclusive. It's disrespectful. 
But so what? I mean, who wants fucking inclusivity anyway? I mean, I'm like you. I don't care if I'm accepted by GLAD or not. And, and of course, Tovey has to, you know, apologize to all the delicate snowflakes out there. And though many of us, you know, find masculine gay men to be people we want to represent the community. And, I, you know, I'm just sorry, guys. You know, it, it would be great if even more of them showed up, you know. Uh, where is this sensitivity coming from? Where, I mean, gay shame used to be the answer, I think, but I'm not sure that it is now. This demand for... Now, true, it, it comes and it goes, but Russell was uh, labeled the worst gay ever all over social media for that comment. What is that about? I mean, I felt, I really felt for Russell. He was just saying how he felt about his life. Exactly. He was making a comment about himself. Now, you can agree with that or you can disagree with that. You can think he has gay shame or you can think <laughs> that he was just saying that's how he's got the roles that he's got. Like, you can read it wherever you want to. But people were so angry with him. He got, like, death threats oh, sure. on Twitter. And you're like, first of all, everyone should calm down and like think about what is really important. Like, there's far more important issues to be worried about than whether Russell Tovey said something or didn't say something. Um, but I do think there's a there's an incredible amount of judgment about people. Like, and even if he does have issues with his sexuality and whatever that might be, let him deal with it. Have a little bit of like decency to say, look, it's not easy for people. He's in the public eye and he's gay and he's out. Let him just work out his own stuff by himself. And I found that really like. It was kind of upsetting that people would attack him so much. And I do feel like there is so much about, you know, you're promoting it as being too femme, anti-femme, too butch, too masculine. And it's like, look, I'm just representing how I see the life around me. That's it. And I'm just doing what I can on screen. I'm not trying to represent everybody. But I think... I think you're right. I think it comes from maybe younger people who don't have who have a similar outlook on being gay. And I wonder if it's something to do with, um, you know, when I'm like 42 now, so I, you know, it was harder being gay when I was younger. Mm-hmm. It's probably easier for right. people now relatively. Yes. But they, uh, there is still a desire in this society to absolutely define yourself by something. And so I think there's a lot of younger gay people that are very, very keen to define themselves in their sexuality. And that is a complicated issue. And maybe that leaks into like, well, but I'm going to define myself as being pro this or anti that or that's a wrong type of gay or this is a right type of gay um but it gets very messy and i just wish that people would realize that everybody's very different and it's a muddle and it's a confusion for everybody and basically just kind of back the fuck off a little bit well there is that whole idea of you know masculine gay men feminine gay man. And I got attacked by the message boards in response to the out piece I wrote, which was really kind of a takedown of corporate gay culture that I thought was just completely stifling and just didn't I mean that that idea of um, you know, excluding someone for having a different opinion from you mm. seemed ridiculous to me. But in the message boards in response to the out piece, uh, I got attacked. In essence, critics were saying that they thought the piece I wrote was saying that I hated effeminate men, which is not the case at all. I wasn't even thinking about that when I was writing the piece. And I am not a fan of the aggressively masculine backward baseball cap wearing yo, what's up, no femmes grinder profile attitude as much as anyone, I guess. But if someone wants no femmes, then that's a prerogative. And if someone is secure and confident in their masculinity and is glad he's not effeminate, you know, what is the problem? That is one of the most interesting debates I've always thought within the gay community, this idea of masculine, feminine. I think what's so refreshing about Weekend and also about looking is that 
that didn't really it wasn't really a topic of conversation at all. We had moved past that. We were kind of post that idea. And if it was brought up, it was joked about a little bit as an antiquated kind of a thing. But one of the reasons why I think some of the men in looking are so attractive is that they don't have this kind of stereotypical baggage of being gay identifiers in a way. I think Russell Tovey is incredibly sexy on that show as a confident – well, in his – business life, you know, man who is just unlike a character I really have not seen before. You could argue that in Queer as Folk, but I don't, I think we were still lost in a certain narrative when that show was on. But um, you must be conscious of this to a degree because it is part of this aesthetic you have. And certainly, you know, the Greek movie was really, those guys were non-traditional hustlers in a way. You know, we'd moved into this new world. So this is something that I guess is on a lot of people's mind in a way. I mean, this is a conscious step for you? Or is it not? Or is it just natural? It was never. To portray men this way. Yeah, it was never a conscious step. It wasn't, I never went into Greek or weekend or looking thinking I want to portray men as being more on the right. masculine scale like it doesn't mean anything to me like I agree that there are some men who do not like the, the fact that they are gay and they play out their masculine nature yes and that's a problem you know yes. those people have not dealt with their sexuality like you know but there are a lot of guys who are just like they are who they are I mean they don't have a problem with anybody that's effeminate I don't even like the phrase masculine and feminine because yeah. what's perceived as a feminine man is not anything like an actual woman right it doesn't make any sense to me it's just right. like a ridiculous concept um so it was never my intention it was just i went out and i met a bunch of escorts uh to make my first film creek mm-hmm. and they were the people i met so it w- and they were like yeah these look like interesting people i'm going to make a story about them like they're very open about their sexuality they're you know but it was not about whether they were a masculine version of an escort and the same with the weekend problem is the new relatability movement that is sweeping over everything. The idea that if you can't identify with someone or something, then it's not worth watching or reading or listening to. And sometimes it's an opportunity to attack someone as well. I can't relate to it or him means therefore I won't watch or listen. I can't identify with it, which means I won't read it or listen to what she has to say. This is happening a lot in the culture. You hear it increasingly as a rallying cry, and it ultimately marginalizes everyone, not just artists. In essence, it's kind of fascistic. This has a lot to do with social media, of course, where you can create your own bubble that only is a reflection of what you relate to and identify with. You can block people who share opinions and have a view of the world that you don't identify with. You can create your own little utopia that is only a reflection of you and your values. So it's really about narcissism is at the root of this, and not being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes to see the world differently from how you may see it, that is the first step toward not being empathic, of lacking empathy. 
And there is a disconnect between well-meaning straight people like ex-Sony head Amy Pascal, who in a speech to a gay group last year made some excellent points, by the way, about gay content. I must admit that. But when she says we should get rid of every homophobic slur in every movie and on every TV show and get rid of every stereotypical gay character, I think she enters into this kind of utopian weirdness that doesn't exist and maybe shouldn't exist. It's like when Shonda Rhimes, who when antagonized by critics that there is too much gay sex on her shows, shot back and said, it's not gay sex, it's sex. Well, I don't know about that. When I search for porn, I don't type in sex. I usually type in gay sex. And I think the Shonda Rhimes narrative is a a sentimental narrative. It's a hope for all of us to see the world in the same way, a total whitewashing And it kind of reeks of this overwhelming neutrality in a way. And really, who wants that? And on the other hand, there's Empire, the Lee Daniels show where Jamal Lyon is, I think, one of the most progressive gay characters ever on a TV show or in a movie. And when his homophobic father, played by Terrence Howard, bitterly calls him a faggot, I thought it felt real. And I'm glad it was there. And I'm glad Lee Daniels, as a gay man, did not feel pressured to take that out. The Amy Pascal and Shonda Rhimes examples are in one way or another about stressing relatability. It's not gay sex, it's sex. Let's remove every gay slur from every script about gay people. And yet it's the gay black man, Lee Daniels, who keeps the word faggot on his TV show. Who was defending what for who? Yeah, I think it's very complicated. I think someone like Amy Pascal was doing it for all the right reasons. Yes, I you agree. know, there are people out there who are like who, you know, want to see gay lives accepted in the mainstream and they have a way that they think that will work and I understand that. For me, you know, difference is interesting. Like what mm. makes us different from each other is interesting to me. And I want people to be different. I want everyone to be the same. It would be hideous. Um but I do think that there is a um I mean the idea of like not having people say faggot on the screen makes no sense to me. Like people say it on the street people say mm-hmm. it wherever you go like why not have it on the screen i don't feel like we we're so worried about ourselves as a community that we have to like police what people corporate, say corporate culture corporate, corporate culture. culture wants to you know turn us into one thing i mean I, I do think there is something interesting about people's like lack of empathy for other people yes. now and their inability to to want to see themselves in other people like when i watch a film it doesn't have to be anything to do with my life yes. it can be something completely different in fact my favorite films have nothing to do with my life but i can relate to those people i can feel for those people and i can find similarities between them and me that are interesting to me or differences between them and me and all of those things are interesting but i think that people don't want that anymore or the other side is they don't want to have to see something that actually relates to them i think that's another problem i think they don't want to sit and watch a show that actually talks about their lives because that can be just as bad as you know not seeing anything at all the meanings of movies can change over time and some don't Uh, but uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about the reaction many gay men my age and younger have about cruising what was once William Friedkin's notorious serial killer movie set within the late 1970s gay community in Manhattan where someone is murdering gay men the younger gay men I know today like it and reference it. It's not a great movie by any means, but I understand why gay men, younger gay men today, find something kind of punk and minimalist and gritty about cruising. In today's world, it's not burdened by any kind of significance. But when cruising was made in, in, I think it was made in 1979, released in 1980, it was, of course, you know, a provocation as most movies are. You know, it's somewhat inherent in the DNA of a movie. 
Gays hated it. It was a symbol of bigotry or homophobia. How dare you make a movie where gay men are being hunted down by another gay man? And I think what people missed within the controversy over cruising was that cruising is really, and this is what we talk about with um, younger gay men of today, that it's really a movie about identity. It's about losing yourself to a role, playing a part uh, really what it means to be an actor. And that must have been a reason as to why Al Pacino was probably attracted to it, because he plays a straight undercover cop who, because he looks like the victims, uh, enters into this world as a bait, trying to lure the killer towards him. Again, not a great movie, but surprisingly lurid and gritty and scary and effective. And the movie felt, even in 1980 when I saw it, it had a kind of exploratory quality for me, a kind of a documentary quality to me. And it really does. Looking at the movie now, it has a very wide range of gay men, men in it who are not stereotypical. And yet, in its moment, it was attacked as being homophobic. Now it's not. It's just a murder mystery set in the gay S&M world. So the, the reputation of that movie has changed a bit. And on the other hand, I don't know how well Brokeback Mountain is going to age. And... It's so interesting to see how gay-themed movies are really trapped in the times that they were created. And because of the progress of the gay community uh, in so many ways, it does regulate some of these artifacts to irrelevancy in a way. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, cruising is interesting. Like, I think, you know, I remember watching that when I was, like, 13 with my straight best friend, and we got it from the video shop by mistake. And it was like... What, what, do you, what were you looking for? I think his dad actually got it for us. I think it was to do with driving or to do with cars or something. Oh, right. Okay, <laughs> and it clearly wasn't. And it yes. was like, oh, my God. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, this is incredible. Um, but I think, first of all, I understand why perhaps a gay community might be very worried about something like that at the time. Like, the gay community has been attacked yes. and is a minority so it has to defend what it thinks is is you know defamation against it so i understand that but i think sometimes what the problem is that maybe you know films like cruising and films like broback mountain which i think will last the test of time mm-hmm. is because first of all when you look at them if you look at them from a, you know as a gay standpoint it suddenly becomes all about the gay stuff right and the truth is those films aren't all about the gay stuff right. the good films about gay people are actually not about the gay stuff yes both uh, Broadback Mountain and Cruising are about the struggle for identity, finding identity, living in like bad faith, you know, living an, a wrong identity. Those things are really, really interesting and are interesting within a gay context, but they don't exist only in a gay context. Um, and so I think they will last the test of time. And I think sometimes people, when they watch a film that's a gay film, they forget that it's about other things. And I think that's a shame sometimes. And I wish that people, you know, when you make something about gay people, it suddenly becomes all about gay. Does it represent gay people? Is it about gay? When, in fact, of course, it's about other things. Did you see Iris Sachs' movie, uh, Love is Strange? I did see it, yes. yes. Am I being too harsh on it in terms of thinking it was overly cautious and that it at times needed a more forcefully conventional approach? I thought there was the basis for some really juicy, great scenes being laid out. And because of Ira's approach, he kind of pulled back on them and didn't let them flower dramatically, I felt. And I think that's maybe why it didn't do as well as the gay press or the entertainment press thought it would. I, I thought the the, the um, you know John Lithgow character could have been a little bit stronger, a little bit more desperate, maybe a little bit more sexual. There is a reference near the end of the film that he had cheated on Alfred Molina during all those years, and Alfred Molina just stood by him. But you know, there's a scene where he's painting a young boy up on a, on a roof, and I was thinking, this is also chaste. Chopin is playing tastefully in the background, and there's nothing kind of not even a glimmer of because because if there was. 
it would ruin the cause of the movie, which is painting these you know older gay guys as just so damn lovable and lost. Am I being too harsh on the movie for that? Or what? Did, tell me honestly what you thought. Because, I, I because, like the film because it it does become quite moving near the end. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I like the way that Ira makes films. I think there's a there's a like gentle subtlety to them, and there's like a there's an ease and kind of a grace to them, and I do quite like it. And I feel like I like I do actually like the film. I went to see it with quite a lot of people in San Francisco, and a lot of people didn't like it that I was with, and I was a defender of the film, mm-hmm. and I I actually liked it a lot. I didn't feel like I needed to see them having sex. I felt like and I kind of understand his uh, reasonings not to like see them have sex. Like, I understand that because there is a way that it would it would cloud the kind of film a little bit. And I think it's the same with something like The Imitation Game, which I have my own feelings about mm. whether I like it or not. But I certainly don't feel that that film would have been better if we'd seen Alan Turing having sex. I definitely feel like oh. I needed to see that. No, well, look, not at all. But I'm not even talking about seeing the lovable old guys in uh, you know Love is Strange get it on. I'm just talking about any interest in any kind of sexuality. I mean, there is a scene where the two get into bed together and it's kind of played kind of slightly comically and it's it's so adorable. Look at look at heavy set Alfred Molina and John Lithgow trying to get comfortable in yeah. the bunk bed. And that's another thing I didn't understand about that bunk bed. What was a bunk bed doing in uh, the house of a family with only one child? Anyway, that's just, that just seems to be too too neat. It was just too neat. But um, no, I'm talking about even Alfred Molina at a party uh, looking over at whoever, some of the hot cops that were there, having some kind of, even with the guy who he ultimately gets the apartment with, it's all so chaste. There's no kind of drunken lunging or any kind of, I'm not talking about having sex scenes. I'm talking about talking about sex or having that urge. And it felt to me like he sacrificed that for the cause of the film, that he wanted the film to play to this audience. And uh, I kind of, I guess it left me colder than it did some people. Well, what did you think of Ryan Murphy's adaptation of The Normal Heart? Did you see it? <laughs> I, I did see it, yes. I it, did see it. It, before I talk about this uh, at all, I mean, I have to say that ultimately it touched me on a certain level. It's kind of hard for it not to on, on one level, but it was kind of a bust for me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've you know, it, strangely, it didn't touch me, which sounds mm-hmm. like awful. No, 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 no. What the subject matter is? No. I mean, you know, there's a great documentary. We were here. Yes, um, which is just an incredible documentary. I think that mm-hmm. touched me to my very core and left me a wreck, a crying wreck for days. And the normal heart didn't. And um, I, you know, I think perhaps more than anything, it's just uh, Ryan. Murphy and me probably have different aesthetic tastes. Yeah. I think that's the simple thing I can say. Like, if you know, my the things that I interest me and the films that interest me would are not shot and made like that film does. So I think more than anything, it was maybe aesthetic choices that meant that I couldn't feel emotional towards yes. the film rather than like anything that was kind of wrong politically or anything about it. Uh, no, I mean, I guess it, it is all about aesthetics. And what I was thinking about, because we were talking about Iris Sachs, I was thinking about why didn't they get Iris Sachs to direct that movie? Because it would have really toned down the, the over emoting of the play mm. itself and it would also force Ira to get a kind of sexual and get some sexy time going on with this movie <laughs> and I thought it would have been the perfect balance so I know Ryan 
Ryan Murphy had had the rights to this for some time, and I know that it, the movie felt completely miscast across the board to me as well, and that was a huge problem, I think, with why it just doesn't connect, because, oh, there's so-and-so, oh, there's, there's Julia so-and-so. Roberts in a wheelchair. There's Julia, oh, yeah, oh, that's not, was not, um, but... It doesn't not work because of its politics at mm. all. It just works because of its aesthetic. And you and you know it was very interesting because a conversation I had with the few gay guys I know who watched it, who um, didn't like it at all, they said that Ryan Murphy's theatricality kind of collided with Kramer's, and that you really needed someone with a distance to that mm. material to pull it off. Maybe even a straight director in a way, because you know with Mike Nichols with Angels in America, people were talking about how he d- designed some of the sex scenes in that movie between two men interesting choices and maybe that it needed that kind of emotional and sexual distance because you know it really does the the cheesiness of the Fire Island sequence that opens really kind of carries on into the rest of the movie this kind of over-emoting over-emotionalism which is look it's in Ryan Murphy's wheelhouse it's it's always been there it's not like this aesthetic bloomed with the normal art I just wonder if that movie would have worked better and had a larger audience perhaps if it had a subtlety to it. I think it probably wouldn't have had a wider audience. Mm-hmm. I think in many ways, like, there's, you know, lots of people really liked The Normal Heart. Like, I went to a screening of The Normal Heart, and, like, there were lots of people that absolutely loved it. And I think that's, the like, the key thing, is that, you know, some people like a certain aesthetic, and other people like a different type of aesthetic. And that's fine. Uh, but I think a subtler aesthetic probably wouldn't have got that film a bigger audience. I don't think. I mean, it might have done, mm-hmm. and it probably might have been a film that I would have liked more. Um, but I don't know. I wonder if the mainstream audience wants a subtle aesthetic. I'm not sure they do. Um, I think, especially the way that like culture is moving forward and everything has to be quicker and straight away and immediate, there isn't so much time to let things be subtle and linger and form an opinion and work at something a little bit more. Like I think maybe one of the problems with um, with looking for a lot of people and with Weekend is and the new film I did as well that's out at the end of the year is that that you have to work at it. You're, it's an engagement between the filmmaker, me, and the audience to together work at something, to understand what's happening, to like delve deeper. And I feel like in the end that gives you a, a greater emotional effect. But um, some people don't want that. They want to know straight away, this is what it's about, this is the story, this is the plot, this is how it ends. Um, and they want it to be fun, um, which I don't like. <laughs> well, I, well, look, watching Furious 7, um, mm. uh, the latest installment in Fast and Furious franchise, it felt like it was edited by a blender. Yeah. I can't. It makes me sick. I actually can't watch them. But, but, but the problem really is, is that uh, because actually the last Fast and Furious movie, Fast and Furious 6, was quite elegantly made. And the compositions uh, were widescreen and didn't cut so fast. So you could actually see the spatial, the cars doing their amazing acrobatics. And you saw the whole stunt in, in a shot. And you're wowed by it. Here you, there's literally 40 edits per three seconds and it's it's impossible to grasp where anyone is in a particular chase and it just relies on heavy fast cutting and sound effects you know so it's and and that movie is going to make a billion dollars which um is neither here nor there i guess but um 
This leads us to porn. <laughs> and Are we're, we going to watch some porn? Uh, well, bring, <laughs> I, I bring out your phone. I've we probably can, got some there somewhere. Well, you know, well, I've been thinking about porn a lot lately because I was cleaning out my computer. And I had downloaded a bunch of really good porn from, I think, 07 and 08 that I'd forgotten about that I yeah. had on file. And I was watching it recently. And I, and I went through a heavy, like, porn phase where I was really interested in looking at As porn. As we have all. Yes, we all do. Um but I have also in the last five years or so um, have come up it's, – it's strange, I know, but, but bear with me. So um, the question I've been asking myself is where are real gay men portrayed without politics or ideology or apologies or respect? And it has been for me porn. Porn. Um, porn is the reminder that it's only sex that separates us. Nothing else, just sex. And gay porn is the ideal world to find the ideal gay man who is unencumbered with societal meaning. Porn is just a representation of the sex act. That's it. And I find an increasing purity to this idea about porn when I hear gay men in West Hollywood restaurants arguing about politics or gender identity or hetero normativity or being respected or whatever. And when I mentioned this, this idea I had about gay porn and men in gay porn, when I mentioned this to Iris Sachs, in fact, um, that I often think the world of gay porn is the ideal world in its representation of gayness because it's just about sex. It's just about who you fuck. There's no ideology attached. There's nothing political about it. It's just two men or three or four just fucking and it's not dominated or colored by an ideology. This is really the only thing about what being gay is. You simply have sex with other men. That's it. And Ira kind of snapped at me and totally disagreed and said that I was leaving out the capitalistic aspect of it all, suggesting that capitalism had trapped these men and boys into a kind of system, a kind of degraded world where they absolutely had to perform sex acts in public because they needed the money. But the gay porn world now is capitalism with a very happy smile, following some of my favorite porn performers on Twitter and Instagram and tracking their friendships and their relationships and the way these young men now brand themselves. The way the community works with each other means something very, very different from the gay porn life here in Hollywood of the 70s and 80s. And I, I think a movie like Boogie Nights would be a very different movie if made today. I don't know if there is a dark movie actually in this anymore, but a lot of these gay porn performers who are very well known within the community are uh, are friends. Uh, they're boyfriends. They are couples who work together. They seem to embrace what they're doing. These guys are branding themselves, selling themselves as everyone does on social media, trying to get followers, trying to get likes. And they are happily embracing capitalism. They are, of course, hoping to make money with maybe the porn being the trailer for escorting business. You know, who knows? Which it is, which that's true, that because they, um, you know, they happily uh, embrace escorting and give awards to it in terms of, uh, I think the hookies they're called. Yeah. So, w- what do you think of this? I think it's an interesting <laughs> argument. Good, good. Please I mean, tell me what, 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 what. Tell me what's wrong with it. Where am I? Where am well, I misled on this thing? I think there's. I mean, look, my experience of making Greek Pete, who incidentally won a hooky award he won <laughs> best international escort of the year well he was also not a porn star no, no. okay no. but he was definitely an escort and there was a, there was a similarity in terms of he was happy to promote himself through his sexuality and he would be on websites you know showing himself naked and have photo shoots of him naked and he would have sex with people and you know i was naive coming into this world and it was fascinating being with him and seeing how absolutely secure he was in what he was doing like he knew he wanted to do it he wanted to make money he loved having sex that was great 
And it was very, it was actually, I remember being quite jealous. I remember thinking, God, you're so um, actually in tune with your sexuality and not burdened by the sadness that I have in my own life about my sexuality that I was kind of really, really impressed by him. And I really liked him. I thought he was a great guy. And I, was, I found it really fascinating. And my mistake with that film was probably I tried to infuse a sadness into it that basically was coming from me and my own feelings rather than his sadness. But at the same time, that's not to say that his life was not easy. And there were not things that pushed him towards that situation. Um, you know, issues of growing up, having no money, wanting money, and living in a society where money becomes the most important thing. And I know that all he wanted to do was make money. And I would discuss it. I'm like, why do you want to make money? So I can buy a house. So I can do these things. So there is, a, a, you know, I think culturally there is a desire that money becomes the most important thing. And so people think, well, obviously I like having sex. I don't mind having sex. I'm secure with my sexuality. I'm going to have sex. And you know, I'm going to make a career of it. And I have no, I mean, if, if someone wants to be a porn star, they should be a porn star and they should try and be, Pete always said, I want to be the Muhammad Ali of porn stars, of um, escorts. And I was like, great. You, he had some like real ambition to be a really good escort. And I was impressed by that. I do think though that when you watch porn, it is certainly representative of the very basic nature of, sexual, of, of being gay. You like to fuck other gay men. Simple as that. But it's very much like a present thing that you're watching. The very present thing of being gay means you like to fuck gay men. I do think being gay is more than that. I don't think it necessarily means that much more. And maybe it's changing as well. So I think society is changing. But growing up gay, there is something that growing up gay does to you as a person. I completely agree with that. It absolutely makes you feel isolated. It makes you feel different. It makes you question your identity. It makes you, for some people, work harder at discovering their identity away from like the mainstream or what mainstream opinion is. So I think sometimes when you watch porn, all of those really interesting notions of identity and struggle with identity are not represented when you watch porn. So for me, it's, I mean, what I'm interested about when I make gay theme material is about that struggle to find your identity in terms of who you once were, what the world thought you would be, and now who you want to be in, in the future. And I do think as a gay man, that becomes a very, very important issue in your life because you're told when you're young, do you know what? You shouldn't be gay. You should be something else. But I do think that's changing now. So it's interesting to see how that will develop in, in the future. But I do think that being gay has its like... You know, there's a very universal issue with being gay that everyone else experiences, searching, trying to search who you are. But being gay makes that problem more pertinent, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. And I do think that the artist in me was prodded along a lot faster, I think, by my realization that I was gay when I was a child and an adolescent than it was for my straight counterparts, in in fact. Mm -hmm. And I was – I think that that isolation, that uh, alienation from – the herd from the group really does make you question everything. And I was filled with doubt Mm. and doubt is the essence of art. And I think it's the thing that moves you towards figuring things out within, within your own work. I mean, I remember being like young and reading like American Psycho. So I must've been like, Oh God, 17 maybe or something. That's that's okay. I was working in a supermarket and I was reading, it was a very quiet supermarket. I was reading it as I was working behind the counter. And I remember, you know, Patrick Bateman is not a gay man, but I remember reading that thing and feeling, I understood that feeling of isolation and basically having an identity that isn't your real identity. And it felt like I remember reading that novel and that's what like spoke to me about that. Well, it's all, 
also the gayest book ever written. That's so true. That might, that might be <laughs> it why probably it was. It probably was that too. Um, so I look. I do agree with you about that. But I guess as someone who has um, watched my fair share of porn over these many, many years. There is a change going on. It is a much more relaxed attitude. It is not as democratized as it once was, where everyone was kind of somewhat, somewhat over-muscled and the, the uh, aesthetic was very, very poor. Uh, you realize as you get older that the best porn really depends on editing. The editing is very vital to it and, and what you're showing within you the You don't edits. want long takes in porn. No long takes in porn. So, so a lot of people have figured that out. And, you know, there is this kind of entrepreneurship going on. I'm thinking of an outlet like Cocky Boys for some reason and how they've managed to build this brand in a way that seems, dare I say, kind of healthy. I mean, they all have, they're all quite young and they all have these Instagram accounts and Twitter accounts and they're constantly showcasing their vacations and their shoots and their friendships outside of the shoots. It, in some strange way, as someone watching kind of dreadful porn from the 80s, that this, we've, oh, we've reached this and it's kind of okay. I do think that there is different types of porn. I think there are certainly porn styles that are making a lot of money and they're probably very content with their life and doing well. There's also like young kids jacking off on the internet every night. That's for being and being paid money like i don't think that that is necessarily a healthy thing to be doing i mean maybe it is for them but i can't i mean it's a there there was there was a troubling aspect to this to the selling of that like going on a website paying some money for someone to like jerk off you know and this person could be like 17 18 whatever it is do you think so do you think that it's changing now because it's so tough for me because like i've got i've got i've actually got two kids i mean they're girls but like i wouldn't want them to be doing that when they're 17 or 16 on the internet and i would think that it was probably a trouble it would trouble me if they were doing that i've been living for the last five years with someone much younger than me and, you know, we uh, compared, uh, you know, our adolescent experiences. Mm. I really had very few, if you want to, you know, look at it. I mean, yeah, and they were, and they were of uh, the kind of closeted narratives, which was really what, what was happening. And he said, that's just so funny because, you know, I had internet. I had the technology and I could find another 14-year-old boy who wanted to, you know, get it on. And I, we'd find out the address. His parents were home and I'd just bike over there, bike back to my house. And I realized I was quite jealous of that because that's true. That was an outlet. And I don't think this harmed him in any way, exploring his sexuality that early. I think everyone is ready. Most men are ready to explore it at that age or younger. And so the idea of jerking off on a camera, I think it has become more commonplace in a way because of the, the collision of uh, teen sexuality and technology. And, and I really noticed it when I met James Dean and I knew who James Dean, the porn star, is and, and I I became fascinated by him because ninety percent of his fan base is teenage girls. Those are the people who love him because he looks like kind of a chewy teen heartthrob in a way, kind of a more you know a Semitic Kirk Cameron if you, mm. if you want. Do you know what he looks like? No, but he sounds hot. Oh, he is very hot. And he doesn't look like your typical, stereotypical, um, you know, straight porn star, which even that look has become democratized in a way. They, it's moved from the kind of mastodons of the 70s into, you know, kind of like younger, more d- d- democratized look. But that was, a, that was a big eye-opener that he had girls as young as – and I don't want to terrify you because you have two daughters as young as 12, 13, 14 – really responding to him. They can't get his movies, but they can follow him and get gifts of him and everything. 
And it and it really made me think that oh, so young girls are into sex. They're in. They have this thing going on because when I was growing up, oh no, it was just boys who were like that. And that, 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 that there is there was this realization that um, it's wider than I ever thought. You know, it's a big. It's a. It's a much larger space. I think the thing that maybe just worries me is that, you know, they, like kids nowadays, you know, like when I was young, it was the same. You looked at like a catalogue of someone in a pair of swimming shorts. Like now they can go and watch someone being fisted on the internet in two seconds. Like I do think that, yeah, it, yeah. that like it, can, it, it opens up the world of sex while teenagers are very, very young. And I think it can like change their idea of sex. Like I remember when I was, you know, single and young and like, you know, in my 20s, you would go out, maybe meet someone in a bar, you'd start chatting to them, maybe you'd go home, have sex with them like it's if you are just like joking off on the internet to someone or you're just hooking I do worry that it may damage the ability for intimacy like porn is not about intimacy porn is about sex and about yes mutual gratification but it's not about intimacy and I think for a long time gay people have been told that being gay is about sex not about gay intimacy where of course really while the sex act is what makes you gay it's also the fact that you fall for men and you want to be intimate emotionally physically with men so I think that porn doesn't allow an understanding or development of that idea of intimacy well, talking about cocky boys, which is that porn outlet, and uh, and which reminds me of uh, the next thing I want to talk about, the One Direction documentary that I just watched, <laughs> which um, often seemed like a cocky boys porn film with the porn cut out. Very young-looking guys often doing mundane things before having sex with each other. So I was randomly watching movies last week while working. Uh, some nights I work on my laptop in my bedroom, and I, I kind of keep a movie on that I really had no desire of seeing in a theater, but I can pay, you know, half pay attention to on demand, you know. And last week I came across both a, a movie called Into the Storm, which is a movie about a series of epic tornadoes that hit a town somewhere in the Midwest, including the biggest tornado, quote unquote ever found on record in the history of keeping wow. tornadoes. It's a fiction film, you know, with, with kind of cheesy, better than sci-fi kind of special effects. The, the sci-fi channel, that is, by the way. And this One Direction documentary from last year, which simply follows a world tour the guys are on, and they are two spectacular-looking movies that seem very much of this moment, kind of a, the YouTube movie in a way, just scenes linked together, non-narrative, uh, spectacle rules. These movies just exist for kind of the spectacular, super visual movies, no plots necessary, the tornadoes, and the crowds in the One Direction movie are jaw-dropping and epic. The scale of these arena shows are amazing, and the movie takes full command of them for and, and cuts it and shoots it for maximum impact. Everyone can understand them. There is no language barrier. It's almost true global cinema. And in some respects, compared to most of the American movies I've seen so far this year, and I think both those movies I'm referencing are from last year, it almost seems like these movies, we should pay more attention to them because they seem like a way to energize a theatrical medium that seems to be stagnating in so many ways, at least within American cinema and American independent these movies are visual, super visual. They're really fun and actually at times kind of beautifully made, even if their content is completely threadbare. And I thought, 
okay, bring on another tornado. I want to see another tornado swirling around, picking up actually the, the biggest tornado ever on record in the history of the world actually hits an airport and lifts these 747 and 777s up into its eye. <laughs> and it's like, I love it. Where, where can you see that? Where can you see a tornado taking a bunch of planes up into the sky? And then, you know, the five guys in the One Direction band are, you know, on these stages in front of these huge crowds with these lighting shows around them. And those movies, I, I really haven't seen any American movies in 2015 that I could really recommend. Well, San Andreas is coming soon, so maybe that would be one of those films. <laughs> With The Rock, I think. With The Rock. Yeah, like, yes. I, I mean, I completely agree. Sometimes there is nothing better than sitting down and, like, watching those kind of films. I will, you know, if Roland Emmerich has another film where the world is being destroyed, I will be the first oh, I like person. That. I like that last one. What was it, the tw- 2010? I love that. I've seen, like, ten yeah, times. Yeah, the special folks are... Fantastic. Like, who doesn't want to see a tidal wave go over Everest? Yes. Like, it's amazing. Like, and I think those things are great to see. And I'm not like a film snob in terms of like mm. I went to see the Avengers the other week, the other day, what it was. And those films have their purpose, and I love that they exist. And you shouldn't like you should enjoy them and sit there with popcorn and watch them. But for me, I can't just do that. Like, that's a yeah. terrible shame. Like, you have to go and you can't always eat pizza. Like, you do need the other things. Well, those films aren't really about anything. Although I would argue that 2012 maybe is, but like. Most of those films are about nothing. They are just about spectacle and they're about getting you excited and the music being loud enough that you, like, your heartbeat is you know, raised. But I just hope that you know, if people get fed too much on those kind of films, then they'll go and sit down in front of something else and they won't be able to watch it. Like, there's a lot of like, very, very kind of lower-budget American art house films that people just don't go and see. Yes. And they make like you know, $50 and no one sees them. And you're like, and I've, you know, I, they are good films. They are very, very good films. But you need to get back into a rhythm of watching films like that, watching that kind of aesthetic, watching European films, watching something that is different. And I just hope that, you know, you know, you have people have so little time nowadays that they probably only go to the cinema like twice a month if they're lucky. Um, and I just fear for those smaller films that people just are like, don't go and see them at all. But, you know, I want to kind of know what those smaller movies are because I just got an email from Time Warner Cable inviting me to come watch, quote unquote, the hottest indie movies all month long. Oh, and I'm wondering, what does that even mean? What are the hottest indie movies now? I mean, what indie movies are we talking about? Give me some titles well, that you've seen recently that I, you like. I really like, there's a director called Antonio Campos. I think it might be De Campos something. And he did a film called After School and a film a year ago called Simon Killer. I think it was last year. I saw Simon Killer. I liked I thought it was mm-hmm. a really, I think he's a really interesting director. And maybe the film's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's a really interesting, it is interesting movie. Yeah. And, you know, I had feelings pro and negative about elements of it I really liked yeah. his first film after school a lot but I really like those I liked his films and I like you know a lot of like Joe Swanberg's films like there's a lot of like independent cinema that I do really like and people just don't don't go and see them and like you know Weekend made no real money in the box office these well, films make no real money in the box office well I wanted to ask you that uh, it was Weekend profitable no I haven't had a single penny from it nothing right, right. I mean in America it made in the theatrical like half a million which you know is nothing but for like a film of that size it actually did really really well right. like a lot of those films make like $50,000 um, so IFC were really happy with that like thing but they don't make they just don't make money you don't make money for them you know I the, the film I've done recently I'm not going to make any money from it right you know you make money maybe from TV you don't make money from independent films yeah that is really where everyone is heading now the idea that making money in the movie industry now uh, is rare in a way and that is why everyone's you know heading to TV as um, long as that's your ambition is to make money 
Like that's the tough thing. Like uh, the, the thing is, it's very easy to be seduced by the world of television, but you can still make films and you can earn enough money to make those films. Um, and I think in LA sometimes it's easy to forget that everyone's like, "How much are you making on this? What's the money on that? You're getting that for this, you know." And it's important to realize that there's only a certain amount of money you actually need to live, and you can if you're making a film. If you are lucky enough to be able to make even a low budget film once a year, you're st- you're making enough money to live at least. So I think it's it's about working out what your priorities are, I suppose, within the world of entertainment. And I haven't worked that out for myself yet. 